0: It, this is uh, Ambe, and we're here for uh, our conversation about comic books and um, graphic novels or kind of whatever people want to call them. I was looking up for some good quotes on it, and I came across one where some somebody had said that gra- uh, the difference between graphic novels and comic books are the binding. <laughs> there really isn't much of a significant difference. And anyway, so... This is part of a year-long project of mine where we're talking about indigenous literatures, and it started with um, a book I read about Daniel, uh, the Daniel Heath Justice had w- written. And as I was kind of going through the months and kind of creating the different categories, it occurred to me that this is a valid category of literature, um, but it doesn't often get uh, it, it doesn't often get a lot of attention. Neil pointed out that he's uh, Daniel was a contributor in uh, one, and I think one of the Moonshot volumes. So, yeah, so that's great. Uh, So I'm just going, so I'm here, I've got, uh, we've got Jay Ojek, um, who actually designed my avatar. Uh, you see me on social media and I look like a superhero. Jay is why. Uh, That was a really interesting process that um, I had absolutely no idea. I was just like, make me look cool. And he's like, but I need to know this and I need to know that. I was like, wow, that's, There's just so much information. I I, I do jump into things all the time with no idea of what's actually required. So it was was an amazing process, and I really love her. Um, And so we've got Neil, who is uh, probably my most frequent flyer with this because he's just so cool and into everything um Lee Francis who it was actually one of the very first guests on um my medicine for the resistance podcast that i co-host with carrie goring and we were talking about indigenous futurisms and that was just such a neat conversation um and someday i hope to get to indigenous comic con because that looks really cool and then we've got uh raya foubert who uh, who is my cousin but also a really cool person um, and likes uh, likes comic books, graphic novels, um, all that art- all, all that artistic literature stuff. So now what I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna kind of go around and ask each of you to give a better introduction than the one that I just gave, uh, a little bit about kind of how you connect with or do this, you know, this kind of what it is about graphic novels and comic books that got your attention and keeps you there. So we'll start with Jay
1: so uh yeah uh hello hello my name is jay Odrick. i'm uh anishinaabe artist writer tv producer jack of all trades master of absolutely none um and i've been reading comics since i was old enough to be able to read uh even though i'm from the Kitigon, Anishinabe community in quebec which is where my dad's from uh i was born in rochester new york and uh because my dad like a lot of guys from the rest there wasn't a lot of work uh in the community so a lot of guys left to work construction high steel jobs like that so I was born in Rochester and right up the street from where we lived there was a comic book shop and we didn't have a lot of money but luckily for me the comic shop had this kind of dubious practice of taking the comics that didn't sell and tearing off the covers and selling them for five cents so as a kid without a lot of money it was pretty great because you walk in with like 25 cents walk out with a couple of comics roll them up stick them in your back pocket nowadays as a guy who makes comics for a living I'm like how could you but at the time it was absolutely awesome so uh that's how I kind of got into it and I, I fell in love with the idea I think of using pictures to tell stories I really wanted to be able to tell stories and, and that's what brought me to it and, and I fell in love with the medium and that way of doing it because it seemed like something we could do without needing uh, you know a ton of camera and uh, equipment video equipment and things like that. So uh, I've been working in comics for longer than I care to mention on camera. Uh, I'm actually a lot older than I'd like like to say. And um, I'm best known, I would think, for my original graphic novel called Kagagi, the Raven. Uh, That led into an animated series. I was the executive producer and showrunner on called Kagagi, the Raven, which aired in Canada, the United States and Australia. I drew two books by Canadian author Robert Munch called Black Flies and Bear for Breakfast. And both of those, I think, are important because they were... They were very commercially successful, but they featured all Native casts of characters and they were both set in First Nations communities. And it was a real trip for me to be able to go into any bookstore anywhere in Canada and find books with heroic-looking Native children. And in addition to that, we had Bear, uh, which these were published by Scholastic Canada, and we had Bear for Breakfast published in Anishinaabe Molina. And I think that was a really important thing, too because up until then they just published the books in English and French and I said, why don't we consider doing an indigenous language? So that's something I'm I'm gonna try to push for and and hope we can see more of is is more books like that, mainstream books published in indigenous languages. I think Anishinaabe moving was just a a start and hopefully we can move into more in the future. And other than that, uh, um, I've worked uh, with Lee most recently on his Kickstarter anthology project, Edited by uh, Beth LaPonce called A Howl, a werewolf anthology. And I've got a story in that that's um, really interesting. And we'll, we'll talk about that more later. But uh, yeah, that's me and, and that's who I am. Oh Howdy.
2: I'm Neil. I'm in Houston, Texas. I grew up reading comics. Um, Archie was the gateway drug. Um, the 1960s Batman TV series also a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I am not native. There's not an ounce of anything in my cells that is native. So I'm the settler here who is just coming here to ta- geek out about comics.
0: Now, when you say Archie, do you remember the Spire comics? The art that Spire, the Archie comics that Spire put out, which were basically chick tracts done to Archie.
2: Yeah, and you know, I I don't think I. I don't know if I own any of those. I don't think I do. Strangely enough, I mean,
0: yeah. you would I, think I'd have. I read, a I read lots of those, and that's the childhood that I had.
3: Uh, hi, uh, I'm I'm Raya. Uh, I grew up reading comic books because um, they were easier for me to read than um, those nasty paper books um as as someone who uh is disabled having something that was easier to read was great because i read just as much as all the other kids did if not more i just read kelvin and Hobbes instead um because that's that's the comic book that was was my gateway drug but that got me into superhero comics like that got me into spider-man that got me into the x-men i was a huge fan of um the, uh, DC comics for Batgirl. Um, I'm still a huge comic book and superhero nerd. Um, but yeah my my interest in comics really stems from wanting to read as much as everybody else but not really having the ability to. And uh, just the easiest form for me to consume literature was through graphic novels and stuff like that. And I still own graphic novels. I still read them as much as I can, though admittedly uh, being a university student, um, I have not really had the chance to read them because I've been really busy with all the mandatory stuff that I have to read. But yeah, that's, that's me.
4: Hey, KwaZi, this is so exciting that we get to hang out again. Um... So yeah, uh, my name is Lee Francis. My family's from the Pueblo of Laguna on my dad's side um, and the Pueblo of Missouri on my mom's side. So I was like to say, and then people get confused. They're like, there's a Pueblo of Missouri. And I was like, no, I'm just kidding. And my mom's like straight Anglo. Um, Uh, yeah, so my love of comics also stretches back to about as far as I could read. My dad was a huge science fiction and fantasy fan. That's what our shelves were filled with. It got to the point where my dad literally had to look at the dates that things were published because oftentimes they would upgrade, you know, update the covers for, like, science fiction and fantasy things, and if it was any time before, he would, like, he'd be like, if it was any time before, like, 1986, he's like, I've read it, so... Mm uh that's how much like i i come by my nerd-a-tree, like it's genetic nerd right it's genetic indigenous nerd um so uh but most of the time i spent my 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 worlds leading up until i started native realities in education and and i think that was really formative um i mean i'll make the joke that uh, the other joke i like to make which is i got a phd in education so that i could open a comic shop um you know but it, it, essentially i when I started working in schools because I loved comic books, what I would see on the shelves for my kids and I worked at home. So I worked at my home res, um, at Laguna Acuma high school. That's where I, you know, almost a decade of my career there. <clears throat> and when I look at the shelves, what you would see is essentially you'd see like a whole bunch of kids books. Like, you know, and a lot of them would be non-native writers within the, you know, the ki- early kids literature. And this is probably, you know, this is 20 years ago when I started teaching. So you'd have this stack of kids books stuff like Paul Goebel Maybe there'd be a storyteller or two, like a local storyteller or two, um, but, you know, not, not really, not a lot. And so, uh, and then, and then on the same shelf, there would be just like this gap, because there was no YA. There certainly were, there was like maybe two comics that people could find them, and then it would jump right into adult literature, and then you're reading Louise Erdrich, right? And it was just like, man, that's a huge span to cover from reading a picture book to jumping into Louise's work, Right. And especially for me, because I didn't see any comics. And I think a lot of us have gotten into this as Native creatives of like, yo, I didn't see anybody that looked like me. And even when there was a comic that came out or something, you know, uh, at least in the mainstream, oftentimes it would be, you know, my Northern Plains brothers and sisters, right? So headdress, horse riding, you know, just ripped. They are all, they're all jacked. They are, those guys are just yoked across the board, right? I mean, for real uh, you know, planes riding the horse. I was like, yo, my people were short and we like grew corn. Uh, you know, I was like, "I, I don't see my people all that much in this kind of stuff. So, um, so I, I just started kicking around ideas and I wasn't really doing anything. And it was 2014. Uh, I met arrogant star at a native writers event. We just started laughing about, you know, like we should have like a native comic code that we can stamp on books to give them like some authority. And, uh, and a lot of it just took off from there. We started publishing out of my nonprofit at the time because I was like, well, you know, the comic people, let's arrange them and start getting stuff out the door. And I and then a lot of people hit us up on Facebook. They're like, this is great. You guys should publish more. And I was like, we really should publish. More. So we started publishing and then just crazy way leads unto way. Um, you know, it started out like, you know, we're publishing, and then uh 2016, I was like, we should all get together and have a Comic-Con. Cause there's not one for us. Like usually we're, we're the, what are we? We're the, we're, the, we're the token native at the Comic-Con talking about native stuff, right? <clears throat> I was like, I'd rather it be the, like the token natives at a Comic-Con anymore, it's just a Comic-Con for us. And we all get to hang out and party and play. And that's what I wanted to do. And then 2017, we opened Red Planet Books and Comics because um, I had so much stuff piled up from the Comic-Con in my house my wife was starting to get a little, she's like, this has got to get out of the hallway. So I was like, all right, we should open an office or something, right? Um, And we opened a shop instead. And now we're the only native comic shop in the world. We're the largest distributor of native comics. Uh, We still publish. We're doing Howl with Jay and a whole bunch of other native writers. Um, We've got a Water Protectors comic coming up. We just, I mean, I'll talk more. We just got the license from Tim Truman. Uh, we're uh, We're his publisher for Scout. Uh, for his reproduction on Scout. So if anybody knows, that's probably the original Native comic, uh, like single superhero comic that came out in the mid '80s. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the, this this all revolves around my life. I I love comics, nerds, games, toys, collectibles. Um, I do RPGs. I do comics. I mean it's just it's it's writing and and trying to get more of the stuff out there on the shelves for our kids, you know, any way that I can.
0: That sounded a lot like give a bouse a, a cookie. Like yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> what happened. Yep. Kind of led led into another one. So Neil, you had mentioned a couple of indigenous comic book characters whose names have fallen out of my brain because I didn't write them down. And what Lee was just saying just made me think of like representation, like how how were we there back when we were younger? And I mean, I was just reading Archie comics when I was a kid. So there was like no indigenous content at all unless it was a Halloween issue.
2: Well, the two series that I I followed uh, a little bit, well, one I followed completely, the other one I kind of fell in and out of. The earliest one I remember was called Turok, Son of Stone, which uh, was a Indian and dinosaur story that uh, Turok and his young ward, Andar because they always had a young sidekick, uh, got lost in this lost world with dinosaurs and cavemen, and, and the whole story was them trying to find their way out. Uh, this was published originally by Dell Comics and then later by Gold Key. Um, and so, I mean, it wasn't really a indigenous setting, it was indigenous characters lost in a lost world kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, as I was thinking about this, the, the similarity between this and the next one uh, was called Eric, um, which was created by Roy Thomas, uh, who did a lot of Marvel. He, he brought Conan into comics. Um, he created this for DC Comics and Eric um, was a indigenous young boy who gets, his tribe is decimated by another tribe. It's made, he made up a tribe um and is set adrift at sea and is picked up by Vikings and taken to Europe. so he's another kind of fish out of water story, uh, not an indigenous setting, but an indigenous central character. Um, so those were characters that I kind of grew up reading uh, well, by the time Eric came out, I wasn't well into high school, so um, but as a young person <laughs> reading those books. And uh, I was reading something really different. Of course, it's all by white creators, as far as I know. And, but I mean, respectfully done. And of course, previous to that, there's you know all kinds of Western books. Um, and you have the character Scalp Hunter, which was a white guy raised by Indians. Um, I think there's more than one of those kind of characters in the, in the back, in the, in the canon. Um, And of course, there was a time when Lone Ranger was a big, big franchise. Tonto had his own comic for a while, but I don't think i read any of those. But but this, you know, this was all very mainstream, um, sort of generic Hollywood Indian. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are those familiar to you, Jane? I think you and Lee were both kind of nodding along at different places. Were those familiar to you?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Turok more so than the others. I remember Eric from when I was just a little kid. Um, but I, I remember Turok because um, there was some cross-media stuff that was done. There was a video game, I believe, for the Nintendo 64 or something. Yeah, it was a pretty popular game. Um, and so far, as Scalp Hunter and things like that go, I, I, I remember those. Um, and uh, the, the first one that really First Indigenous character that was created by non-Indigenous people that I remember really prominently was in a a book called Alpha Flight by John Byrne. There was this character called Shaman, and uh, it was, you know, the tropes we've come to know and expect as it comes to Native people, uh, the mystical Native guy. And I don't know about any of you know the rest of our guests, but I don't actually have mystical powers, I'm sorry. I, I hate to disappoint for anybody who's tuning in who's expecting me to do some, uh, some magic, but uh, not, not in my uh, repertoire. So uh, we, we saw that a lot. And as well with Shaman, it was really funny because the thing I always say is <clears throat> whenever you get a native character in these from these corporate companies, their identity as a hero tends to be their indigeneity. So we can't have a guy who's just like a crime fighter, like a Daredevil or somebody like that. He has to be, you know, like Red Wolf or, or something of that nature. So the way I the way I always explain it is like, if there's a fire in Gotham City, an apartment building on fire, people aren't like, uh, oh no, the, the building's on fire. We're all going to die. Wait, we're saved. It's white Batman. He's just Batman. Whereas when you look at like... <laughs> african-american characters every one of them has the word black in their title so it's like black vulcan black panther you know they all get that and it's kind of been the same in a way for us where you know every character kind of has that thing hung on it and you never get to see just a native character who's just a cool native character it has to be about that at the same time the costume has to have all of the stereotypes and tropes of the past so we don't see guys in modern superhero costumes we see people still wearing leather and buckskin now looking at like lee and everyone else here we're not wearing leather and buckskin i'm wearing t-shirts some jeans and some shoes like some jordans i paid way too much for so i always kind of wondered as a kid why these things were the way they were um these people didn't speak like uh sure but with all due respect, you know, we're not here to fight crime. Like, and, and for most of us, you know, our, our day-to-day attire is not, is not that, right? So, I mean, we've seen it. Um, it. It's a thing that's played out numerous times. And that was a part of the reason why I created Kagagi the way I did, because I wanted to create a character who moved away from the stereotypes, who just looked like a visually cool character that any kid could look at and go, oh, that looks interesting, I want to check that out. And almost suckering them into reading it if they weren't Native, because it was a costume design that I felt could stand next to Batman or Wolverine and didn't scream. Like this is a stereotype where he's wearing a uh, clothing that that's been outdated for a hundred years or something. So I think that's one of the big things um, with modern indigenous comics is we're starting to see from indigenous creators moves away from those types of things. But yeah. And as far as scout goes, scout was the first time I saw an actual native character who I thought was cool. And, uh, I, I remember, um, we used to go to the store that would take these like kind of mystery bags where they'd take a bag and you couldn't see what was in it. And you get a stack of comics for like five bucks or something. And you just hope there was something decent in it. And my brother and I picked up a couple of these and got home. And there was a book with this scout and we're like, oh, he's native. Like, and it was the first time I saw something where it wasn't that stereotype where the character, you know, again, with all due respect to characters like Shaman and the people who created them, a lot of those characters spoken a very like, many moons ago, my people. And I'd be like, hey dad, can you, you know, tell me something you did a long time ago? And he'd be like, yeah, way back in the day. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. We don't talk like that. So it, it really, you know, there there were a lot of times when I saw characters who really reflected who we are uh, in in the modern era, we'll say. I think that's the best way I can put it. Yeah, I call that
0: cigar store Indian. When they, when, they talk, when, they, when they talk like that. But we all know people who put on that res voice when they get in front of white people. We all know those people. <laughs> and we watched them a long time ago. I wrote an article that got published by a Canadian magazine and they sent a photographer out to take my picture um, for the magazine. And I wore this just purple dress that I had worn to all the powwows that I had gone because I liked the way the skirt twirled. And, um, and, and so she says, like, where are your traditional clothes? And I was like, what are you talking about? And she says, You're, you know, your traditional clothes. Like she said it louder and slower as if that would help me understand it better. And I was just like, what are you, t- I don't have. So I let her remake me into, she kind of cobbled together. And you know, there's a picture of Ben, I think, and Ryan's probably seen this. Uh, uh, he's wearing like a feathered, it's like a hairpiece, but he's wearing it like a medallion. It's just, it's horrible. I mean, from the magazine standpoint, I'm sure it looked great. Um, She wanted beads and buckskin. And when I was complaining about this on a message board that I belonged to, this one guy, um, you know, he's Oglala Lakota. And at the time, I was just reconnecting, right? So he was like the rock star Indian for me. Yeah, exactly. He's making like a stoic Indian face, And he says, yeah, well, my traditional clothes are jeans and a white T-shirt. So (laughs) it'd be so much better. Um, but Raya, you read uh, some, read some of Kagagi, right? You were saying that you weren't able to get all the way through it because of that whole university. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah uni- university's been really ne- knocking me on my ass. But yeah, uh, yeah I've, I've, I I've was working my way through it. And I'm when I have downtime, I, I, I've been reading it on the bus, trying to get there. And I was blown away. I was like, this is awesome. I want more. I could not like, I had to keep putting it down because I'm like, I need to make sure I'm on the right, I'm getting off of the bus at the right spot. Or I don't want to be stuck on the bus. I have to go to class. Um, but yeah, it I I was I I really liked it because um, it I it really played into the superhero stereotypes, but not the this is like. Uh, This is native stereotype. It it played into the this was a superhero trope. The transformation scene. I I was so excited when he finally for the first time transformed into the Raven and I was like, this is awesome. This is great. This is this really scratches that superhero itch because growing up reading superhero comics watching Iron Man watching Thor being a huge Marvel and DC fan. There's just tropes that you expect to see in superhero comic things, and one of them is like, have a cool costume, have, you know, a cool transformation moment, have a cool name, have some cool powers, and this checked off all of the boxes that I had going into it, and I was pleased as punch reading it, and I'm super excited to continue uh, reading it. I'm excited to watch the animated series, especially because it, like, streams here and in Australia, and my significant other is Australian, so I'm going to force him to watch it with. Me because he doesn't get a choice anymore, um, but I'm, I'm I I was super excited and especially because I, I read it because I knew that Jay was going to be on the on the panel and I was like oh I'll I'll read this so, you know to so be able to like these are my thoughts and I was like this is awesome and it made me so nervous that I was going to be here and had to have to talk about it in front of the guy who made it. So you put me on the spot here, but, but yeah, it, it, it really, like I was, um, I mentioned er earlier, me and me and Patty were talking about um, the, the, an episode of the X-Files in which they're on the res, and uh, one of the things that you see a lot in shows around that time and in the X-Files was, was definitely guilty for doing this. But people of color showing up and being the magical fixers, but they're magical people of color powers doing magical things. And I just, something, it struck me as something was off as I was just trying to enjoy the episode when there was just a few too many cinematically timed like eagle noises. And I was like... You know, I'm starting to think that yeah, I'm starting to think that there's something a little, you know, pizzazzy about this, and they're not exactly you know doing what they should. But uh, I mean, I I would be if I could remake the X Files, I'd totally. That was that'd be one of the episodes I'd want to redo, and I'd want to redo it right, um, because there was just a couple couple issues with that. Like they they made up a tribe. Um, there was a whole they, there's a whole thing about indigenous people and werewolves um which I'm super excited to to read uh Lee's stuff about because it's it's definitely an interesting trope but why is it always indigenous people that are werewolves (laughs) like is is I'm sure they can be more than werewolves guys but yeah I'm I'm super looking forward to that stuff but i i don't know I, what else to say
0: i think it was that one episode where it's about the shapeshifters they're in the uh pacific yeah. west and it's the shapeshifter it's the shapeshifter episode that uh i think um metis in space actually watched and talked about if, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly uh, yeah that's a really great episode and then there's the whole uh blessing way arc where uh that involves the ancient aliens and mulder takes his like travel through the other world or whatever. It's just it's just so terrible. But yeah, the magical Indians who exist for no reason but to save the white guy. Um is just I just uh
1: I just like to say uh a, a quick thanks to to Raya for that. That honestly is incredibly touching and don't be nervous you did a great job and I'm really glad you enjoyed it because honestly that's that's why I wanted to do it was because I don't think we ever got to see those things uh, at the time when I created Kagagi. I know there's a lot more comics now created by indigenous people with really cool indigenous characters, but you made my, you made my day. And that's the reason why, uh, why I worked on it. And uh, thank you very much. And I hope you enjoy the animated series. So kajimiigwech. Thank you.
3: Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited for it. Like I, one of the things that's always been weird to me um, because I, I grew up in an area where there were, I had family, of course, that that are indigenous while I am not. And I had friends who are indigenous while I'm not. And it was really bizarre that I could see kind of pieces of myself. Of course, there was there's a whole issue about disability representation and stuff like that um, in just about everything. But it was really weird that I couldn't see the people that I grew up with. I couldn't see my cousins. I couldn't see aunts and uncles. I couldn't see. Uh even just the people I went to school with it was always super weird to me that like there just wasn't that there but it with being able to see stuff like this it was awesome being able to go like finally I I can show this like back to my friends like back home and I can be like guys check this out like if you haven't already like you guys have to see this it's excellent but yeah
0: Ryan brought up werewolves and so that kind of brings me to lee in your project because there's wolves werewolves and these other ones that i don't know who they are so can you talk a little bit about who they are
4: <laughs> yeah so wolves werewolves and Rugaru, which is sort of Rougarou. the transformational right so that's that metis uh you know pronunciation and i think it's very interesting and i i love that you brought that up raya as well because it's actually not something where we said they would be native we just put out the call and we're just like hey we just want to write a book about werewolves and everybody took like we had so many people that just you know beth la ponce you know just kind of made this call out and everybody just jumped on it because i just think there's i don't know what the attachment is and i don't know i know hollywood likes to make it something but there's also something that i think we have internally you know maybe it's our connections to you know, our, our ancestors, right? So to our wolf ancestors and to our, you know, our clan relations, um, but it is something that's, you know, that, that turned out to be just so fantastic of just the responses and the range of stories, right? Because what I think, what Hollywood does is it does the same thing that Jay was talking about is it identifies the, the identity uh, of, 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 you know, native existence, also becomes this thing about, you know, this animalistic werewolfy existence, right? Uh, And so they all have to, and they're all, you know, it's all melodrama, it's all, you know, like everything, you know, it's just like, it's about the transformation and living in two worlds, you know, that kind of stuff. And the stories that we're getting are stories where it's just, it's just the thing. Uh, You know, Dale DeForest's story is fantastic. Uh, about just w- werewolf heavy, it's a werewolf heavy metal band, right? That's it, you know? They just go on the road and tour as a heavy metal band. I have this one that it's basically a, we- a native werewolf family that's like in the middle of this werewolf fight until they get mom pissed off. And then mom, it's like turns into the werewolf and is like, stop it, all of you, you know? And then everybody chills out. I was like, that I think is, in many ways is the beautiful parallel to what we were just talking about, right? It's the existence of indigeneity parallels what, how Hollywood and how pop media has hyped all of these things and found these interconnections for us. Whereas, man, if you're just a werewolf, you're just trying to get by, you know, more often than not, you gotta to go to work. If you got like a werewolf society, you're probably gonna hang out with them, you know, more than likely you're gonna sit there and just be like all, all the old werewolves are just all out there smoking cigarettes together shooting the shit, you know, the whole thing, right? They're just going to be doing that all day. Just like, you know, just, just like we normally do, you know? And, and I think that that's, that's the brilliance of like what, how, and I think we we're so close. We've just got like a few more, few more of the art that's coming in at this point. then we're putting everything together and we're going to try and get it out, you know, crossing the fingers with the, you know, the, the uh, postal apocalypse and everything that's happening that we get it out by December, um, just trying to get everything into production is, is a, it's a crazy time for that. But, uh, yeah. And I think that I also do want to give a big shout out to Jay as well, because Jay is, and I think, you know, everybody needs to know this. There are three people, three native folks that were publishing, uh, prior to like the 2010s, right? Uh, it was Tim Truman. It was John Proudstar and it was Jay. And Jay was one of those guys. Because Kagagi, I think 2004, when you first created it, and then it got picked up in 2010, right? So there wasn't anything else but these cats, right? Maybe you saw, like, you had, I think, I want to say you had, like, I want to say there was, like, superheroes, and there were, like, cartoons. So there was, like, cartoon styles. Like, Mutt Man was out there. There was some really small indie stuff of people, like, and We're finding some of that stuff that's pulling around. But, like, these aspirations of creating superheroes like Jay was one of those dudes right at the beginning. And then Arrogant Star hit like right after that, because she had done Super Indian, the radio play, and then she just started her. So those four people as native peoples, are, those are the giants. Those like, man, I love being on here with you, is these are the giants that I stand on their shoulders, right? Like, so any room that I'm in, I was like, yo, I always throw it out because whatever I do has to do with any of this stuff, right? And, and even when I see it right now, it's the last thing I'll say, for this moment is that like, when I see Marvel coming in, you know, uh, columbus Native comics, you know, as if, as if they finally discovered that there's Native comic book artists out there, right? Marvel is just like, look, look at our indigenous voices. And I was like, listen, I got a lot of friends who are drawing and doing art around that right now. Jim Terry's in there, you know, washoyo has been doing art for that. Like, these are friends, like these are, you know, these are truly people I hang out with. But it's like all of a sudden, you know, they make such a hype, like they finally deserve this kind of credit. When I have to point to folks like Jay and John and Aragon and Tim, and I'm saying 40 years we've been making comics. We've been superhero comics, not just like native stuff. 40 years we've been doing this. It didn't just happen in 2020. So I think that's one thing that I always got to shout out to all these folks, especially when we're making this. And so glad Jay is making
1: how with me too, so. Can I uh, say something about? Thank you, Lee. That's really, really amazing. I am really touched, man. Um, one of the things that I think I would like to mention because I think it is really important is there were certain other anthologies that I had taken part in, uh, specifically the Moonshot anthologies, where I was given direction. I was on one of them. I was actually, I'm not going to say told, but asked, "Do you have a Wendigo story?" And I was like, "Yes, I do. It's called Kagagi. I did it fucking 20 years ago." Like it's been done. Uh, but they, they had asked me for that and, and I didn't take part. That's the reason why I wasn't in, uh, I believe, the second one. Um, there were a number of rules that were given to me on that. It was like nothing political, which I thought was kind of crazy because, I mean, realistically, uh, a lot of what a lot of us are doing is, is allegory uh, for political and, and social issues that our people face. And it's an important issue for us. So without getting too further into it with the Howl, there was literally no directives given beyond that it had to be indigenous and it had to be werewolf related. And just to show you how far some of us have taken that, my story in it is not even really a comic. It's a 10-page werewolf love song told in poetry with painted art. And I was so nervous to to email Lee and Beth and be like, so here's what I want to do. Uh, it's something I don't because I'm always nervous when it comes to these anthologies that I'm doing something that somebody else is doing. So it was really about two things. It was about trying to do something and make sure I wasn't stepping on anyone else's toes. And number two, it was playing with that idea of the werewolf as this, you know, again the the tropes of it playing into uh, prejudices towards our peoples. And so far as us being primitive and savage in these things. And I said, no, I'm gonna try and make the most beautiful love story and poem that I can and tell something beautiful uh, with it. And I was able to find the exact right artist for it. Her name was Crystal Cox. She's absolutely phenomenal, seriously. And I couldn't be more happy. And there was not a single thing I was asked to change on this by by editorial or, or publishing. We were just allowed to do what we wanted. And that to me as a creator is that's magic you know that's that's the most important thing so i think you're going to find a wealth of different werewolf stories and it's not just going to be uh the same kind of tropes that we've seen hollywood commit in the past i, I can speaking from what i've seen and then from what i did for sure i i definitely tried to move away from that so you know i i think uh, if you're interested check it out because there's some pretty wild stuff and it's definitely pushing the boundaries of what comics can be i think and visual storytelling as a, as a whole
0: well, werewolf love stories. I am so curious now. I mean, you were talking about monsters and kind of the way, because that's oh, Jay had, has also been on Medicine for the Resistance, and um, you know we were talking, you know, we were talking about monsters, and you know, talk about werewolves, and we were talking particularly uh, about the Wendigo and, and that story, and we've always heard that as kind of this cautionary parallel with colonialism. And I I wrote about this in the newsletter for anybody who who got it. Um, But it really isn't. And it's starting to trouble me to see it that way, Um, to see it as as kind of this parallel with, with, you know, we call politicians um, Wendigos, you know, we call capitalists, you know, we, you know, we call them Wendigos. Um, And and there's Wendigo catering up in Sioux Lookout. So as far as saying its name repeatedly and calling it into being, I think that ship has sailed. Um, But, the conversation that we had with you uh, Jay about that about it because in some versions in the legend that you had grown up with the original creature isn't killed the ones that he turns are but you don't kill the original monster because then what then what happens to the hero and that was something that you explored in Kagagi and then or you you wanted to explore sorry as the animated series went on but what do you do then when you've killed all the monsters what's the hero left with and then as I was reading um, the graphic novels, what I was reading was this place. And there's, there's a Wendigo story in here, but it's true. It's the story uh, because this is a history book, so it's not fantasy. These are histories, uh, indigenous histories that are being retold um, in, in graphic format. And, and then that led me to the book about the last Wendigo killer, Jack Fiddler who was actually arrested and executed by the RCMP in Canada in the early 1900s because we can't kill people that are threats to our communities, but the RCMP can kill us um, because that makes a lot of sense. And it occurred to me that for for Indigenous people, these creatures are real. These creatures are real. They're, They're something that possessed us, that threatened our communities. They weren't metaphors for anything. They were real. They were part of our world. And Europe, did we didn't infect Europe with this Wendigo thing. They had their own monsters that they brought here. And and so I'm really troubled now by that that comparison with capitalism. But then the way I'm tying this into that whole werewolf thing is when you have stories written by people for whom these things are real, you get much different stories. You get much different stories with much different outcomes, much different goals. And I just think you get much better stories. So
3: now I'm going to let Anne-Raya talk about her anthro angle. Awesome. Uh, So the, my... I don't have anything to back this up, but uh, because this is just from the top of my head, logically, what would make sense for the reason why we associate werewolves and natives is because it goes way back to that colonialism of savagery. Um, what is more scary than a scary wolf creature that is going to savagely rip off, rip out your 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 innards and throw them everywhere? Right? I, I don't know what werewolves do. But uh, it, it 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 ties it ties back to that it 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 is a, a trope that you know exists because people say you know not very nice things right but uh, that is what are you thinking about Neil?
2: <laughs> so I don't know anything about werewolves' history. Is that an indigenous creature? I, I mean, I in all the movies that I ever took notice of it, some white guy transforming. Um, so where where does that connection get made? I, I'm not aware of that connection, is, I guess, is what I'm saying. And and I had sort of assumed it was a European legend. Maybe. Well, I,
1: I, unless I'm mistaken, I think a lot of it comes from France, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's my understanding is a lot yeah. of it, yeah.
4: <clears throat> and a lot of their stuff was based around wolves being used as like this fear of you know it's it's the romanticism so it was a lot of gothic it was it really tied into the gothic writing as wolves being dangerous while they were doing the big wolf purges you know through their areas um i think uh what is it um hbo wolf walkers fantastic um animated show uh they do a flip of it and it takes place all in um occupied ireland right so and the werewolves uh, are, uh, you know, the wolf walkers are the Irish essentially, right? And the English are the ones that are basically murdering any wolf they can find because they, you know, to, to, to bring them under heel, fantastic, fantastic. I mean, like, I, I you know, with our, our relatives, right? I watched this and I was like, dang, this is so similar, right? Like, you're just like, wow, this is, this is totally colonization. Um, I think for us, I mean, as far as I can tell, and I haven't done a huge amount of story anthropology or story archaeology on this, but we don't have a lot of, like we have, well, not in the way that it's done in these types of stories. We have, we have wolf relatives. We have wolf stories. We have people that do become wolves, but then don't, then they just kind of pop in and out. Like it doesn't, it's not a thing. It's, it's not this struggle with the internal nature of it. It's just a It's just what happens. And that's the thing about if you look at any of our stories, it's like, that's a thing. It just happens. You know, it's a a gig. So like, that's it. And I think we found somebody looked it up. So you should jump in and run that out right now,
3: Raya. Okay, uh, I just gave it a quick Google. And uh, basically, the earliest known surviving example of a mantle wolf transformation, and I am quoting here, uh, is found in the Epic of Gilgamesh from around uh, 2100 B.C., uh, however, the werewolf, as we know now know it, first appeared in ancient Greece and Rome in ethnographic, poetic, and philosophical texts.
1: When it comes to like the the popular werewolf myths that we see, especially like from Hollywood, I think the original probably would have been like the old wolfman with uh, Lon Chaney Jr. or whatever. If I'm not mistaken, I think he uh, he gets turned in France. And I think a lot of what we see as modern werewolf fiction tends to come from France because their their term for the monster is Lou Garou. Lou, meaning wolf in French. Um, But if we look at it, I don't know why human, like humanity, for the most part, especially in Europe, has always been really taken with the idea of the wolf, even though there's a million different kinds of animals out there. When you mentioned Rome, uh, it made me think of the idea of the founders of Rome were raised by wolves Romulus and Remus. Uh, It's never bears for some crazy reason. I'd hate to see the, the human who was reared by skunks, for example, but we're always going to get wolves, So I don't know what it is. It has something to do, I think with humanity's preoccupation with the wolf, maybe because it's a social animal. I'm not sure, but it's a, it's a really, really strange thing. It it always tends to be wolves. It's never uh, raccoons or porcupines. It's always going to be wolves. I don't know why. Um,
0: So just to be completely weird. Um, I wonder if Stephanie Meyer and the Twilight series are responsible for this big indigenous werewolf connection um, because she had her shapeshifters who were, they thought they were werewolves and it turned out they were just shapeshifters. Jay, what are you working on now?
1: <laughs> right now? Uh, holy cow. So uh, I don't sleep a lot these days. Um, I was really, uh, the, the I was more excited about Howl than anything just because of such a departure for me because Again, I'd worked in television and I'd worked in, uh, in, in comics and children's books, you know, and it was something different to do something that was essentially long form poetry. The, the story is called Moonlight Samara. It's a play on Moonlight Sonata. Uh, Samara means bodies. So it's called The Song of, of Bodies and Moonlight. And it's about two people who come together. And I don't want to give it away, but I think it, it came together really well. Other than that, um, I got a couple of children's book projects I'm looking at that I'd be writing myself. I was teaching a course on writing at the University of Ottawa uh, for comics as well as screenwriting, and I had to step away because I just have too much stuff going on to be able to devote to that. Uh, the big thing, I suppose, the two big ones would be: I've got a graphic novel at Scholastic called "I Am Thunder," that's essentially about myself as a kid and how I came to comics and create comics. So it covers what we were talking about insofar as not seeing ourselves reflected in media. And why I decided to try and do what I did with Kagagi, because I was pretty young when I got into it. And one of the things that's important to note with Kagagi was I did three self-published black and white, pretty crappy comics (laughs) that I was doing out of of my basement. And then I brought it to this company called Arcana, uh, which was at the time maybe one of Canada's, if not the biggest publisher of comics, but, you know, up there. Because I wanted the book to be able to be carried through diamond even though that seems to be going the way of the dinosaur right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I wanted the book to be available in any in any comic book shop. And, and that's something I'm very proud of, that you could go into any comic book shop in North America and, and order a copy of Kagagi. So I Am Thunder is about a kid much like me. It's really based on my life as a child and how I came to comics and, and the things that we go through as Native people coming into a world that I think a lot of people and corporations still believe is not our place. And I think it's important that we, we discuss those things. And then more recently, uh, I'm working with a production company here in Canada to create a feature film. It's a, a it's it's not animated. It's a, a live action feature that I, I'm describing as kind of a gritty crime drama. And it's really about how people, especially native people are put into certain boxes and how much leeway we have to get out of them. Them. And I thought that applies to what we're talking about here. And so far as what society expects indigenous people to be and the fight we've got to go through to escape those boxes. If we can, sometimes we can, and I think sometimes we can't. And so for the first time, I've never really talked about it that way, but it's called brawl. And uh, we've got a telefilm grant. So the film is, is being written right now. And, um, it was. It was. We had some setbacks with it just because of, of COVID and the pandemic where I was writing this thing going, can we shoot crowds? Like, I don't know. Can we put a bunch of people in, in a warehouse? Can we shoot in a bar? So it was a really weird thing. And it's taken a little longer than I'm used to just because I've been able to adjust as things have opened up and, and we've been able to do uh, more things in that nature at the same time. You know, you're worried about like insurance costs for this stuff because it's a, it's an entirely new world. So uh, it was it's a, a tremendous opportunity. I'm very blessed, but at the same time, there were a lot of challenges that came with creating a feature film in, in the era of the COVID nineteen. So it's been a trip, but it is uh, it's going to be set largely in an indigenous community. has a native main characters, a lot of native characters in it, and, and that's really what it's about. So between the kids book projects, uh, the stuff that I did with a uh, Howell, which was a, a real trip but I really dove into it Uh, and the graphic novel, that's a 200 page book. So it's a mammoth gigantic book and the film I've been super busy and I feel bad because whenever we talk about the work that other people are doing, other indigenous creators are doing, I'm not overly familiar at this point because I don't get a lot of time to, uh, to read anything or watch anything. So I've just been pretty much a slave to the, to the keyboard. Uh, Haven't really been present on social media all that much. (laughs) <laughs>
0: that actually makes me think of something, and it's a question that I'll kind of pose to each of you, and I'm going to um you a, we'll start with Lee, and then um, just kind of go around, you know, go around the circle. I'm thinking about those boxes. You said, well, you talked about indigenous people, you know, kind of being put into, put into boxes. And then that, ma- that makes me wonder, what is it about comics, do they offer a way uh, of, for us to get out of those boxes that maybe other media don't offer? And, and I wanna think, and, and now I'm, I'm thinking particularly about representation. So not necessarily indigenous representation, but we all, uh, I, you know, Neil and Raya, you both are part of, of groups too that don't always have great representation in media. Um, so, you know, so I just wanna kind of think about that. What what? Well, I'll start with Lee because I, um, and then we'll just kind of go around of how, how this particular medium allows us to break out of boxes in a way that other mediums maybe don't.
4: Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a great way to frame it too. Cause I think it's, it allows the imagination to go beyond what we've been told we have to be. Um, when you can portray yourself, you know, like the the hardest part with filming. I mean, you know, Jay just talking about it, right? Like, you got insurance, and you got a production company, and how much, and they got to get money back. But when you when you're just writing and making comics, the sky is truly the limit. Like, all you got to do is find either. And I don't draw very well, but maybe find a friend, or maybe just go ahead and do what you're gonna put out there in the world anyway, and eventually get better, because you can you can write whatever story you want to write in, and that's you're not you you don't have to conform. Uh, to the way that pop media has insisted. Now, I think there's still residuals in, in what we're all trying to struggle through, right? That, that pop culture media has done through a great propaganda job. But I don't think we have to conform to that. So when I run to write a story, you know, so my comic Six Killer, right? So it's, uh, you know, I started out um, wanting to write a response to, uh, you know, the Violence Against Women Act uh and well i'll even say the step before that is i started out to write alice in wonderland native alice in wonderland and i originally was going to be working with roy boney jr and so we were going to set it in cherokee country because i was like well that's cool because there's a lot of cool parallels we got rabbit you got you know sequoias the mad hatter like you can do some really cool stuff with this and then Vawa comes out and native women aren't included and i was like I was really, I was upset. I was hurt, you know? And so I was just like, well, you know what? I could I, I can post about it, you know, and, 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 and join in the course, which I did. But I was like, let me write this. And you know what I wanted to write? I wanted to write Kill Bill. I wanted to write a woman that was seeking revenge for the murder of her sister and mowing down anyone that got in her way, right? And that doesn't make the best of all dramas. So there's more to it. There's more complications, of course. But that's what I wanted to do. I was like, you know what? to stop this kind of thing, put, put the fear of God into people messing around that, that you're gonna have a boogeyman, right? They're a boogey woman, uh, if you will. Who's gonna come Who's gonna come get you, you know, for messing with native women. So I think the things that I've looked at is that the sky's the limit for what I can write and how we write it. I talk a lot about that. I think what comics allow us to do is to get out of dwelling in uh, to fetishizing tragedy. Right? And I was talking about it today with some other folks is that, well, pop culture and American culture which dominates everything, you know, uh, has forced us to do is that it's, it forces us to relive and fetishizes in our tragedy. So what they portray is dead and dying Indians constantly. Right. And I think what comics allow us is that we get to be living live, powerful, empowered, uh, amazing characters and beings, not at anyone's whims on our own terms, how we want to tell the stories in whatever fashion we're going to do it. So I think that's, that's why I love this medium more than anything, because I also I'm not beholden to a production company. I just get to draw and write whatever I want. If it gets picked up, it gets picked up. If not, I got a lot of good friends. Well, and I run a bookstore, so I'll just throw it on my own shelves. Right. So, you know, that's how it can play out.
0: When, when you said about drawing pictures, that made me think of zines and how popular, you, you know, zines can be just, yeah, I've got a story, I'm gonna draw it, I'm gonna tell it and I'm, you know, I'm gonna get it out there. So, uh, Raya, we, you talked about being an, a disability activist and the graphic novels, you know, the graphic format really helped you in that way. So, mm-hmm. how, so talking about that, but also, you know, seeing yourself or putting yourself out there. Uh,
3: so uh, there is, you know, it, representation for me is really weird because there is, when it comes to, like, mental health with, like, specific uh, mental health issues that I deal with myself, there is um, really no good representation for people with borderline, uh, which is something I myself struggle with, uh, and that is, I, I don't see that in media. There isn't uh, a good outlet for that and the people that i do see on social media talking about their mental health talking about stuff like that um they get so much hate and horrible things said to them about like you're faking it stuff like that that it's just i could not put myself out there like that i i could not be there to tell my story and how i feel about things so that is you know it that's that's I I hope someone else is strong enough to do it, but that's uh, something that I myself would really struggle to do Um, as far as something like uh, autism or Asperger's go, um, because that's something that uh, me and my siblings um, uh, all deal and struggle with. Um, I was talking to my father about this recently, and my father is is this, you know, straight white guy. Who is neurotypical and you know he's he's just a normal guy. So uh, he, representation for him is fine, but uh, we had to talk about like Sheldon Cooper versus Dr. Temperance Brennan. Who was a better representation for someone who doesn't understand social practices and social norms? Um, and Dr. Temperance Brennan was the winner here because there is quite a few things wrong with The Big Bang Theory. Um, which is unfortunate because it's it's entertaining and then you kind of look at it for a little bit longer and you go wait a minute this is not great that's kind of really sexist what they're doing but that's past the point uh, but yeah maybe comic books and and stuff like that is the route that I need to take, <laughs> uh, maybe I need to get into making comics or in writing stories and stuff like that so that there is representation for people who struggle with disability. Because I, I would have given, you know, anything to see um, more things about kids who didn't understand what, you know, was going on with their friends on the playground. Like, I felt very uh, alone as a kid and still kind of do as an adult and just if I could give, you know, the power back to people who are uh, disabled and have more representation for stuff like that. Like we barely see stuff with people in wheelchairs. We barely see stuff for people who are hard of hearing or deaf and like that is, or we we, we still are fighting to, for tooth and nail to get like LGBTQ plus representation, um, which is also something that I'm a part of. It's just, I I I maybe comics is the route that people need to be taking uh, is 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 my thought maybe that's what that's the next step because clearly television isn't working out great for us clearly youtube and social media isn't working out great for us so maybe comics is the next best step
0: well, and when you were talking about um about mental health and, and there's not great representation i mean all the villains right like villains are all the, they that's where all the mental health sits you, you know the mental health disorders are is that's those those are the villains those are all you know those are almost always the bad guys um you, you know so that's it would be nice to see a hero mm-hmm. you know, for whom you know what's termed a mental health you know what's termed a mental health disorder is actually what winds up making things work you know maybe that's their superpower is that they can you know, shut things off at certain times or see the world in a slightly different way that allows them to, you know, to move things forward in a way that that I can't because I don't, you know, I I experience the world in, in, you know, kind of the way everybody else does. I don't have that other other way of looking at it. Uh, So Neil.
2: What comes to mind when you bring it up is that comics is one of the few mediums uh, where you where there's, always, there's long been an independent um, history going back to the underground comics of the 60s and 70s to the sort of the independent explosion of the 80s with black and white comics first and then small press. Um, and you mentioned zines. Zines is another place that that sort of begins. And so it's, I mean, you have DC, Marvel, Archie, to some extent, Dark Horse and uh, Image, and a few others that are the big time, but in the world of media, big time comics is still pretty small, and uh, and I think that somehow makes it easier to be an even smaller fish in that pond somehow. Uh, and people start making their own comics and 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 represent themselves i I'm, I'm spitballing here i don't know what i'm saying but it, it seems like there's a lot that is uh, all you need is paper and pens you know it's not an expensive thing there's also a way to make comics i i, I don't know how much you want to get into theory but <laughs> there's i think you can tell stories differently in comics and i think sometimes uh, People with less media representation have maybe more complicated stories and have layers that I think comics do really well. Um, I think about uh, Alison Bechdel's uh, Fun Home, which is my gold standard for comics. Uh, She has so many layers going on, sometimes in a single panel, uh, where she's the panel is... the picture is depicting something, maybe in the present, the, there's one caption that is doing something in the past. And then the dialogue is doing something else. There's like three different narratives going on. And because it's comics, you can slow down and absorb it. Whereas in a movie that would all be gone in, in a second. I think comics allows complications, even though we think of it as a very simple, you know, bam, pow, uh, medium there are subtleties available to comics creators that I don't think are necessarily available in other media and there's an accepted pathway to do, doing them independently uh, whereas self-publishing as a novelist is still sort of a, I don't want to say sketchy but it, it, it's, it's not as respected it's not as um it's not as an accepted way to, to get yourself published, but in comics, make it yourself. Um, and there there are ways to get that out that I don't think there's in the same way that other media have. Dispute me, I may be wrong.
0: No, I think as you, you were talking, what made what that made me think, Lee's <laughs> ready to fight, um, was for people, you know, like, you know, like Raya's, you know, like Raya's dad, like, you know, people who kind of live in kind of the mainstream world and that's, you know, see their representation every, every, everywhere they go, they develop a kind of shorthand, you know, so they don't have to tell like the whole story because they can, you know, darmack and Jalad at Talaga and everybody knows what they mean. (laughs) Whereas for people who live on the fringe, like indigenous stories, you know, like queer stories, like disability stories, you need to explain more. You need to explain more. You can't just kind of throw out a quick phrase and everybody knows what you're talking about. So like, I think that's what it made me think was when the walls fell. Um, That's what you made me think when you were talking was comic books, graphics, you, you know, telling stories in these ways. Those layers allow you to explain what could other you know what might otherwise be you know put off in, in in, shorthand it could you know you'd see the walls fall you know you'd see kind of the story that lays behind the phrase and so that's kind of what what i was thinking about we have a, a comment from the chat dynamic dan says um which is really a great name uh comics are truly a diverse medium he made a, a comic um they made a comic uh an an unfinished one uh for their final project in high school for art in this podcast has just helped reinforce in their mind the independence and possibility available exclusively to things like comics. Jay, um, you'll get uh, the last word on this particular question about uh, how does... how, how Nice. I, yeah.
1: Nice. So I, uh, I have a lot of thoughts about it. A lot of, <laughs> I think Lee and I are on the same page in a lot of regards, but... If I could just expand on, uh, on, on it a little bit, I think one of the big differences right now is, like I think with Kagagi, um, it was an interesting thing because it started out being completely just, I was the only person who had any say in it. I was self-publishing and then I took it to a publisher and all of a sudden uh, there were you know concessions needed to be made. And so far as how those things work, it's just the reality of a lot of publishing deals and then we took it into animation and all of a sudden we had to worry about uh, a television network and advertisers and financers. And it, it, that's just the nature of, of the corporate beast and the nature of entertainment industry as a whole, I think. And today, the differences um, from when I started doing comics, cause again, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old, but uh, when I started out, there were no such thing as YouTube tutorials. Um, you needed to be able to find the right equipment and things. And it's very expensive to, to draw comics. Those Bristol boards that are 11 by 17 are like a buck a pole here in Canada. And they're hard to find and inking pens are expensive. And, and today you can just get an iPad or something and draw on that and create your own comics. And there's literally nothing between you, the creation of your comics, the distribution and sale of your comics. You can promote them you can do all those things that in when I was a kid were just not possible because I remember coming across the first creator-owned book I ever heard of, I think was Dave Stevens' The Rocketeer, uh, to date myself just a little bit. And then, of course, we had the advent of the Image Comics when the, the Image founders all left Marvel and went and did their own thing. And more than anything else, I think with the Kagagi animated series, we were kind of ahead of our time. And I wanted to touch on this because it's something, again, that Lee had mentioned with, with Marvel now discovering very Columbusly discovering indigenous creators more than anything else with kagagi the animated series i'm proud that because we were on basic cable in canada so we were available in 11 million homes in in canada every every sunday morning which was fantastic and i'm i'm really glad if a lot of native kids got to see uh, a superhero uh uh that that they could call theirs who they thought was cool that that means the world to me secondarily the thing i'm most proud of is that no matter what happens disney When Disney does get around to making an indigenous superhero show, they're not going to be able to say we did it, that they did it first. Just like everything else in North America, just like everything else in Turtle Island, we did it first. And nothing can ever take that away. And that's, to me, something that all of us can share. It's not just about me or the people who worked on the show. None of that would be possible if people didn't support Kagagi. If people didn't buy the comic, there never would have been a show. When you look at what happened with Black Flies, that book was scheduled to come out through Scholastic's book fair program a full year later than it actually came out. The release date was moved by a year because of the demand of indigenous people and non-indigenous people in Canada writing to chapters, to Amazon, to all the major book chains saying, we want this book right now. And I told people at the time, everyone who who wrote those letters, everyone who DMed those companies, everybody here made that happen. And we literally moved mountains. We made one of the biggest publishers on our planet shift a release date for a book by a calendar year. That shows right now, the market is out there, the demand is out there. So for people like Raya, if I can help in any way and you're thinking about getting into comics, give me a holler because there's honestly never been a better time insofar as not only the technical ability to make it happen, but the way for you to reach your audience, the way for you to promote your book, and the way for you to get it out there with people like Lee who can help you to not only get the book made, but get it into the hands of people and get it out on a a bookshelf. So that to me is the biggest thing. Whereas if you wanted to get into producing a film or something, you need to own a production company. Uh, That's just a reality of how you apply for grants in this country. So you can just go out and get yourself a, you know, whatever you want. And for people who are saying, okay, but I can't draw, then do a comic with stick people legit. I mean, we've seen it. We've seen web comics that are literally just stick people that do millions of people. What it comes down to at the end of the day is simple. You can't, I learned this as a kid. My hero was Todd McFarlane and I sat around when I was 13 or 14, trying to draw exactly like Todd. What I came to realize at some point is you can't do it because you're not him and you're never going to be those people who you look up to and you admire. The beauty of being you is that you have a unique voice, that you have a unique perspective on the world that no one else has. And if you use that and you sing with your own voice, no one will ever be as good as you at that. You will be the absolute best that you will be untouchable. Use your voice, sing your songs, tell your stories, do it your way, and you will find an audience, because at the end of the day, that's all we're looking for. The reason why, when you look at comic books, okay, graphic novel is just a term that was created because the term comic had been stigmatized. I was so glad when Raya spoke, and the first thing she said was Calvin and Hobbes, because that's a comic. It's a goddamn comic, just like Kagagi is a goddamn comic, just like Watchmen is a goddamn comic. It's all comics. No matter what we choose to call it. We can call it graphic novels. We can call them trade paperbacks. We can call them comic books. Fucking doesn't matter. It's pictures and words. That's what it is. That's comics. So no matter what we call them, they are what they are. All we have to remember is not to stigmatize certain things and think that one thing is worth more than any other. It's all the same. It's pictures and it's stories. And that's what we're all looking for. We're all looking for something new. If we look at what happened with comics, Things changed around the mid eighties, late eighties, when DC comics started bringing in a bunch of English writers. You had the Alan Moore's, you had the Grant Morrison's, you had, you know, all these people come in with a different take on superheroes, completely change the industry. What I believe we're headed for now is the same thing's going to happen with indigenous writers. Cause we have fresh takes on things. We have fresh ideas and we're coming. And for an industry that worked really long and hard to keep us out of it for decades, the doors open and we're, we're coming. You can, you can slow it down, you can delay it, but it's gonna happen. And that to me is the most exciting thing. And I'll, I'll end on that note. We're about to see, I think a real overhaul in this industry and so far as indigenous creators and indigenous presence. So I'm feeling inspired. Holy heck, that's, thank you, Jay. That was, wow. But
0: Lee could be, and Jay gave me kind of you know a really great segue into it. Are we in a moment now? I feel like Indigenous people, broadly speaking, in a whole lot of in a whole lot of places, I feel like we're in a moment. I feel like we are in, you know, a place of opportunity right now. What do you think?
4: Yeah, I think it's and it's that, I think you're right. It's the opportunity, and it's gonna take that, it's gonna take keeping the thumb. It's you know, it's that pressure point, right? You've got and and not letting, them, I mean, I'll say not letting them get away with saying that like. You can only get like one or two writers in this space, right? Because right now they're starting, what they do is they say like, we're all about opening up diversity and all the rest. And then they start to narrow that down, right? And then it's only a few that get selected at that point, And only a couple that start to like, they'll, they'll sort of weed, they'll sort of winnow that out as their diversity stuff. And I've seen it because we saw that happen with, you know, that's, that's the Sherman Alexi era, right? Like there were t- the early nineties was this great boom of native writers writing poetry, writing, you know, like the, the novels, short fiction. And you saw that crest. And, you know, as we know with German it took up a lot of the air, but they also the the industry was more than happy to accommodate. And they were very happy to accommodate around just a small select group of native writers that they would champion. And those became part of the canon. So the opportunity is there. And right now it's, it's kind of up to us, right? In this part, me and in the industry to, to do the best I can as a publisher, as a bookseller, to keep pushing any chance I can, like with American Booksellers Association or American Library Association to say like, this is going, you, you can't stop. You have to carry these comics. I'm going to make you carry these comics. You ask me for a book list. It's going to be these comics. It's going to be wherever I can find them. It's going to be talking to whoever I can to get licenses to get things out back into print, you know, because a lot of times they just let stuff go. They're like, oh, it's fine, you know, or whatever. Right. I mean, you saw that's one of the conversations I met Tim Truman at Indigenous Comic Con and struck up a relationship scout went into print they had a few through diamond and then they just kind of let it lapse in terms of the reprints and i talked to him. I was like so who has the rights because there's a generation of kids who have never read this this should always be in circulation you know that's that's how we want to be able to see all this stuff right and to to continue to push this stuff forward as much as we can uh so i think i think we're at that moment we're at that, that that precipice and it's up to all of us to keep making more. That's the other part I say. I was like, don't give them a chance to just, buy. I got, everyone's like, well, Native Creatives. I was like, I got tons of people I know, right? And I'm finding more. We, we just got this whole new chunk of people for Howl, right? Like I was shocked how many cool, awesome artists doing, Native artists doing amazing things that I kind of knew of peripherally from like Instagram or from something, right? They're now drawing comics, right? Now they've got a portfolio. So Raya, same thing. We'll toss it. I'll toss it out there. Like Jay, make that comic, right? We've got two good writers in the house that, that will totally help out and find illustrators and do whatever you need to do. Cause I think that's the part the opportunity is here, but now we have to keep pushing in every single nook and cranny, not just comics, but autobiographical. So you got Jim Terry's, you got Jay's coming out, right? So you got two autobiographical comic-based anthology graphic novels, right? Those are going to be, you know, those are out on deck. You've got, you know, like these niche ones. You're starting to see more horror coming out, right? We need, we need horror genre. We need romance. Like it is a whole era area of writing that's just not being covered of romance and chiclet. Right. And I don't mean to degrade it. I mean, there's a lot of people that like it. Right. I was like, we need to take back our werewolves and we need to redo, you know, these, these spaces and do our grand romances, graphic novel style or whatever. Right. So I think that's, that's where we are. This is, this is the moment. And now it's gotta be, it's, I mean, now we just have to turbocharge it and get, and, and not, and not, fall into the lull again because that's what happened in the 90s moving into the early 2000s is there was just this kind of crest and everybody really started to focus kind of on literature so you got a lot of amazing poets that came out during that time and a lot of amazing you know uh, novel writers and all of these other little areas kind of were not focused on by the institutions by the publishers by the you know, the, the a small handful of, you know, colleges and whatnot. So now we're at that space and you know what? Everybody's got to keep doing this. And especially in the field we're doing, I got shelves. I'm waiting to desperately just fill an entire bookshelf of native comics. People ask me, they're like, well, why do you carry all these things? So I was like, well, native nerds. We still like our suit, but I still like Spider-Man. I still want to see Spider-Man. I still want to see, you know, I'll see a little bit of, little bit of Iron Man, you know, and some Batman, White Batman. That's what I'm calling him from now on. So I still want to see White Batman up in here, uh, you know. But I also want to get to a day when somebody asks, and I have one shop that is literally just shelves of native comics and nothing else. That's where I want to be. So that's what I say, I was like, "That's it's not only a challenge, it's a, it's, a, it's a moment, it's an opportunity, and it's a challenge. And I think a lot of the novels
0: that came out in the 90s were also a particular kind of novels, right? Like they had a particular kind of resolution at the end, some kind of happy ending. Like I, I think of Tommy Orange's book that, just, that came out just a couple of years ago, it did not have a happy ending. And I'm sorry if I'm spoiling that for people that are listening. Um, <laughs> but the, the ending is kind of telegraphed well through the book and that's important. The lack of happy endings is important because we don't always get that happy ending. Sometimes the ending, you know, and then we just, we just we deal with that and that's okay. That's, you know, um, I was just talking with somebody else about another book where there, there's no happy ending. And, and that, for, that, that lack of a happy ending forces us to think about social realities because we always want, um, like even uh, even in the book that, that that I'm writing, that the happy ending, like the last chapter, which is about solidarity, I'm telling the story about how Hoof Clan abandoned the Anishinaabe because they were acting stupid, and and you know walked up into the woods and left us on our own. That's my happy ending. <laughs> Indigenous people should all just piss off, and, you know. I, and just kind of abandon everybody and go and do our own thing. The heck with y'all.
4: I <laughs> Not think just, really the
0: just happy ending. My publisher is looking for though, so I have to do something.
4: Just a quick end, and I'll just say I don't think. I mean, the thing is, what we're looking. I think it's a difference between a a satisfying ending or a content yeah. ending and a Disney ending, right? The Disney ending is it's all tied in a nice little bow, and we get the outro that like, and years later. Lee went on to, you know, marry his girlfriend and drive the fancy car they'd always wanted to, right? <laughs> through the whole movie or the book, right? But I always put it, I was just like, listen, you know what my happy ending is? We're still here. You yeah. didn't kill us all off. Yeah, That's a happy ending, right? Like there's here. a lot of things that happen and it doesn't, I'm going to point out tragedy, but I'm still here. My family made it through but by, by luck, by whatever. You did the best you could. That's a happy ending to me. I'm still moving on. So
0: still here. Yeah. Well, and I think that's true of all of our rep- various representations, right? We're still here. The, you, you know, despite um this, you know, kind of despite the best efforts of a mainstream society that wants to make us all the same. Um we're still here. Neil, what are you thinking? We're just kind of winding up last thoughts. We got six minutes.
2: I like comics. Uh, <laughs> um. Uh, does any does does Tim truman have indigenous background does anybody know
4: he does as a matter of fact he does not directly claim it because that's not how he grew up but um he does have i've i've seen i've seen his receipts uh he does have uh cherokee indigenous if i recall so um true 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 clan true grandma so you know and again he doesn't it's not something he banks on or cashes in on so it's usually like You know, uh, it's not something he draws out too much, but, you know, um, he doesn't live it. So he doesn't, he doesn't claim it, which I think is really kind of awesome too, in a lot of these conversations that we have. So it's not lived for him, but he knows who his people are.
2: um, All kinds of, uh, uh, I mean, his final thoughts, I don't have final thoughts. I have continuing thoughts and um, y'all gave me a lot of stuff to look up now
3: uh i'm honestly just my head is just full of ideas i mean i have i have comics i gotta finish reading now um i got uh i in my spare time whenever i'm bored i myself write a bit of a psychological thriller that i've been working on for a couple of years now (laughs) uh i don't know what i'm ever gonna do with it maybe it'll just stay in my google docs forever and ever but uh it's it's I, I I don't know. Storytelling is is great, and I think it's something that everybody can do. And that's kind of uh, my my final my final take on it is storytelling is for everybody, and everybody should have equal platform to do it.
0: All right. Well, so thank you guys so much. This was a good, great conversation. You gave me loads to think about. Mm-hmm. So thank that's you so much. All right. Bye bye.
4: Thank right. Thanks everybody.
0: Bye everybody.